you know, I was certainly questioned by the FBI and, you know, when they were looking for uh, sort of answers. In hindsight, I, there were signals um, of, of something amiss going on in the building. That's Arthur. Right. Okay. So my full name is uh, Arthur Aaron, double A-R-O-N, Levin, L-E-V-I-N. That building Arthur's talking about, number 18, it's the one next door. He lives in Greenwich Village on West 11th Street. He's lived at this address since the 60s. Picture a red brick townhouse, white windows, stone staircase, three stories tall, and four counting the basement. In Baltimore, they call it a row house. In New York, it's a townhouse. Arthur's not just a longtime villager, either. He's actually president of Village Preservation. That's the neighborhood's historic preservation society. And in 1970, while so many other places in the city struggled, this neighborhood felt vibrant. Yeah, the block was really interesting. And it was, it sort of reflected the neighborhood. It was sort of a, not overwhelmingly artsy, but certainly a little bit artsy. And, uh, and, you know, oriented towards the entertainment world. Actually, Arthur Street, West 11th, was pretty star-studded. The producer Mel Brooks and his wife, Anne Bancroft, owned a place down the street. Dustin Hoffman lived two houses away, which is funny because Hoffman played opposite to Bancroft in the movie The Graduate. Oh, and Bob Dylan, he stayed a few blocks south. Arthur lived next door to the Wilkerson's. They weren't famous, but they had money. She was from the U- she was a Brit. He was an American. He owned uh, uh, I, I think uh, radio stations in the Midwest. The, the house was quite elegant in terms of furnishings. But the, I mean, they were very pleasant, upper-class neighbors. They also traveled a lot. And so it wasn't unusual for Arthur to see people he didn't know hanging around their house. What was unusual? was that all the shades were down <laughs> all the time. And I think I may have seen the folks carrying in the explosive. They were carrying in boxes. Investigators first thought the blast was caused by leaking gas. But as their search continued, they began finding evidence of explosives. What Arthur didn't know was that these strangers were building bombs in his neighbor's basement. They had waged a war against the U.S. government. A federal grand jury in Detroit today charged the 13 top leaders of the Weathermen with plotting to bomb public buildings in Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Berkeley, California. I'm David Hollerith. This is Shoe Leather. We dig up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we're back in the 70s. We'll look beyond bell-bottoms, disco, and mood rings to explore what made this decade so notorious in New York City's history. A time when the Big Apple went by a far more sinister nickname. Unionized employees of New York City who faced dismissal have put out a booklet describing Fun City as Fear City. Crime was rising. By the mid-70s, on average, there were four murders a day in New York City. Today, it's closer to one. And the Bronx was burning. 
That's a live shot again of that fire in the South Bronx. People were fleeing the city. Nearly one million left by the end of the decade. They took their money with them. In that time, New York wasn't just broken, it was broke. Beneath its financial issues, protest was in the air. It had been bubbling up since the 60s. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Other revolutionaries turned to dynamite to demonstrate opposition. At one minute before one o'clock this morning, the switchboard at the Capitol received a phone call. A man's voice said a bomb would go off in the building in half an hour. Through the 70s, bombings were high in the U.S., especially for political reasons. There was alarm for a time that other bombs might still be hidden inside the Capitol. From January 1969 to October 1970, there were 370 bombings in New York City. That's more than one bomb every other day for almost two years. Most explosions were small. A few ended in casualties, even death. This is a story about one of those bombings in New York City during the 70s. One that went wrong. This is season two, New York City Drop Dead. Episode, Nasty Weather. Why, in 1970, did five 20-somethings turn the basement of a Greenwich Village townhouse into a bomb factory? Let's go back to the 60s. rock band Creedence Clearwater Revival released the song Bad Moon Rising. It's catchy, kind of overused in movie soundtracks. Not exactly a protest song, but listen to the lyrics. They're pretty dark. That mirrored a shifting mood for a lot of people. The Draft Lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birth dates for the draft. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States, was assassinated in Memphis tonight. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Oh, my God. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park, we heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used as the demonstrators are attempting to form a line of parade and march toward or on the amphitheater. By 1969, half a million people marched on the U.S. Capitol. You can end the war! Race, freedom of expression, poverty, and of course, the Vietnam War. It's what everyone was talking about. It's what they worried about. But the majority of the anti-war movement was carried by young people. On college campuses, the protest movement for social change had been building since the 60s. One organization, Students for Democratic Society, or SDS, held majority sway. By the late 60s, SDS membership ran up to tens of thousands of students, even 100,000 by some estimates, making SDS arguably one of the most influential student political groups ever. I joined SCS because I appreciated the people associated with it because they were 
both morally serious and um, strategically minded. That's Todd Gitlin. Today, he's sociologist, professor, and author of several books, including The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. In his early 20s, Gitlin gravitated toward SDS. From 1963 to 64, he served as SDS president. One of the, one of the slogans they promoted and, and tried to embody was that uh, the issues are interrelated. The issues meaning nuclear policy, military policy, civil rights, corruption of the universities, lack of democracy in general, and so on. Gitlin remembers feeling a kind of energy exuded by its members. But also because it was uh, quite possible to feel in 1963-64 that, that the civil rights movement was on its way to winning. By 1965, U.S. bombing campaigns in Vietnam had accelerated. And so the SDS organized what turned out to be the first national anti-war demonstration in Washington. The war was, was so loathsome and so incomprehensible, so sickening, that it heightened our sense of desperation. So the revolt became more intense, more insistent, more militant. And SDS would never be the same again. In the late 60s, the SDS would become a far more militant group. By then, Gitlin had left the leadership. Inside SDS, tension mounted between old and new ideas about how to end the war. First, there was the Progressive Labor Party faction, who believed the key was building support among America's working class. Which had been a split off from the Communist Party earlier. Another faction, the Revolutionary Youth Movement, was in favor of more aggressive tactics. It took a, a, a inspiration from an idea that there was a global uprising uh, on the part of the poor countries, the countries of the third world, the most exploited countries, and that somehow SDS play a part as an ally to black organizers in the U.S. At an SDS conference in Chicago, June 1969, the conflict ignited into an outright split. The SDS ended its seventh annual convention yesterday in Chicago and accomplished little beyond a deep and bitter split between two factions, the so-called regulars and the progressive labor group, which follows the teachings of Chairman Mao. The news media, even the FBI and their network of informants, pegged the revolutionary youth movement, these so-called regulars, as less organized and so less threatening. That turned out to be completely wrong. On the fifth day of the convention, 100 or so members of the Revolutionary Youth Movement Group stormed out of the building in protest. They would organize around a new manifesto. Eventually, they would take their name from the lyrics of a Bob Dylan song, Subterranean Homesick Blues. We will build a revolutionary youth movement capable of actively engaging in the war against the imperialists. That's Bill Ayers who would eventually take a leading role in The Weathermen. This fall, in Chicago, at the time the conspiracy trials begin, we will lead massive demonstrations against the war in support of the Black Panther Party. Ayers is talking about the Days of Rage, a mass demonstration that started with them bombing 
a police statue in October 1969. The militant groups and counter-demonstrators were planning street battles. He said the radical weatherman group intended to sack the downtown business area. The Days of Rage came out of a new protest strategy to bring the Vietnam War home by fighting in the streets. In the midst of all this chaos, the Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, distanced his party from SDS and the Weathermen. Here's Fred Hampton in 1969 giving an interview to ABC during the Days of Rage. We stand way back from the SDS and the Weathermen. We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. That is, leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call that revolution. And it's nothing but child's play, it's folly, and it's criminal because people can be hurt. By December of that year, Fred Hampton was shot during a police raid, and the Weathermen scattered into small collectives across the country. By February 1970, the Weathermen had shrunk to about 100 members. They'd given up marches for guerrilla operations. And some of those operations were being planned in Arthur Levin's neighbor's basement. One day I was out walking the dog and there were people schlepping boxes into the house. But I didn't know who they were. Arthur's the guy who's lived in the same house in Greenwich Village since the 60s. He's 87 now. But at the time... He wasn't really worried about seeing strangers going into the house. Because again, the Wilkerson's traveled a lot. Among the people crashing in the Wilkerson's house was Kathy Wilkerson, their daughter. Kathy wouldn't respond to my request for an interview, but in 2007, she spoke with WNYC. Well, the, the, I had, um, my parents were away on vacation. I had gotten hold of the keys through a ruse uh, to the house. This was about a week later, a Friday. March 6th. My parents were coming back that evening. And so not only did we have to prepare for this action, but we had to. Cl- I wanted the house to be clean and have my parents never know that we had been there because I was very uncomfortable about involving them at all. Um, and so I had just washed all the sheets that we had used and was ironing them. In the so same moment, have- Arthur was leaving his house. Uh, for an interview uh, at this free medical clinic trailer. <laughs> and um, was on my basement floor level, heading for the door. And how many houses away were you? I was right next door. He rushed outside. Flames and smoke billowed from the Wilkerson's townhouse. The explosion tore a hole through the front of the building. Arthur ran back inside. He called the fire department. But Kathy was still in number 18. Well, when it went off, I was ironing, and the floor sank, and the ironing board started to fall over, and I was holding this hot iron in my hand, trying to figure out what to do with it, and there were no surfaces left. It was just dust and swirling material. At the same time, Susan Blanchett was standing in her kitchen when the explosion happened, about 100 yards down the street. I was in the kitchen cooking. I mean, nothing special. Susan's 92 now. She lives in upstate New York, close to her son, Mark. But the explosion made a terrific noise, and it scared me. I mean, it sounded like it was a, a few feet away, which which was. And I ran out of the building. The explosion was, for the most part, uh, inside. I mean, it it didn't blast out. 
I discovered two women coming out of the building. One was almost naked and very frightened. And I don't think uh, they were were severely wind, wounded or anything. They got out very quickly. Susan says she didn't really know either woman. Their faces were black with soot. One of them, also named Kathy, had been showering when the explosion happened. She ran out of the townhouse with a towel wrapped around her. Susan took the women back to her townhouse and gave them fresh clothes to wear. They seemed nervous, very nervous, you know. Well, no, they didn't tell me anything. I mean, they didn't reveal anything. There wasn't time for conversation or much of anything. Then she headed back out into the street to check on the fire. When she returned, the women were gone. Susan never saw the women again, but not long after that day, she got a call from the FBI. They pressed her about whether or not she knew either of the women. They asked me if I was a communist, and I said no. I owned a house, so it would hardly be likely that I was a communist. It was nothing except neighbors helping neighbors, but they wanted to make it into some crazy thing. A few days later, new information came out about the explosion. A series of explosions leveled this Greenwich Village townhouse five days ago. The body of a man, identified as 23-year-old Theodore Gold, was pulled from the wreckage. Gold was a member of the Weathermen, a radical faction of the SDS. Investigators first thought the blast was caused by leaking gas. But as their search continued, they began finding evidence of explosives. Officials now believe the house was being used as a makeshift bomb factory. Three people died in the explosion, Ted Gold, Terry Robbins, and Diana Auden. Kathy Wilkerson and her friend Kathy Boudin survived. Officials later found more unexploded dynamite in the ruins of the townhouse, enough to have leveled the entire street. The group had planned to set off nail bombs at an officer's dance in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and Lowe Memorial Library at Columbia University. It's just around the corner from Columbia Journalism School, where I am now. So where were you on this day in 1970? I was in New York. I was at a different grouping, not that far away. That's Mark Rudd. He was in the Weathermen on March 6, 1970, the day the bomb exploded. I didn't know about it until quite late that night when I came back to my collective and they said, did you, did you hear what happened? And then I went out and I tried to find the survivors, so to speak. Yeah, sort of group, fought, regroup them. And I did. And find out what had happened. You found Kathy Wilgerson and Kathy Boudin? I found everybody. Were they... All right. I think we were we were all suffering from a kind of a um, a, a a sort of a battle. We we, we felt I, I I can only speak for myself, but we were we felt like we were in the middle of a battle and we had to survive. Yeah. 
In her memoir, Kathy Wilkerson says she and Kathy Boudin met two other weather members in a small New York City park the next day. They each debriefed what happened and were sent in two different directions. They dyed their hair and changed their appearances. Their faces were, after all, stamped in newspapers and wanted posters in the coming months. The weathermen kept going. They went into strict hiding and renamed the group the Weather Underground. A few months after the explosion, the group issued this so-called Declaration of the State of War. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. If you want to find us, this is where we are. In 1975 alone, the group took credit for 25 bombings, but from 1970 to 75, they're suspected of 45 total, according to the University of Maryland's Global Terrorism Database. The FBI said the Weather Underground Organization, which took credit for the bombing, is the same radical group which was responsible for the bombing of the U.S. Capitol in 1971 and the Pentagon in 1972. There were 11 other bombings in New York City plus one Molotov cocktail thrown on a judge's front lawn during a trial against a Black Panther member. Besides the townhouse explosion, none of their other bombings killed or injured anyone. Mark has since denounced the Weather Underground's strategy for using violence. Back then, he remembers it like war. So we saw ourselves as soldiers. We were gung-ho to retaliate for their attacks. We were going to bring the war home. A decade after the explosion, Kathy Wilgerson turned herself in. She served 11 months in prison, then became a high school math teacher. We had been a bright light burning ourselves out in our own intensity, Wilkerson wrote. We had become a voice of outrage whose single-mindedness had cut us off from the movement. We had created a bubble of our own reality, and the bubble burst. The other Kathy, Kathy Boudin, was arrested in 1981 in New Jersey. She acted as a getaway driver in an armored car robbery that ended with two cops killed. She served 23 years in prison, where she composed poetry and wrote about parenting, feminism, and women in the criminal justice system. Today, she's an adjunct professor in Columbia University's School of Social Work. She didn't want to talk to me, but she did respond to my emails. I appreciate your idea about making the podcast, she wrote. I think it is a good idea but I have not participated in recorded sessions about those eras and moments of history. Uh, I think this is us. When you go to Greenwich Village for the first time, it's a prerequisite that at some point you get turned around. 7th Avenue. Going to what, 11th Street? Okay, where are we? Hang on. The streets wind and crisscross. There's no second, fifth, sixth, or seventh street. Oh, Lord. There's a numbered grid, but it follows its own rules. Nothing like the rest of the city. In the 19th century, before the neighborhood became an epicenter for art and culture, it was a rural village. When city planners tried to organize Manhattan into a geometric block-by-block street structure, village residents refused. Of course, that wouldn't be their last act of rebellion. 11th West, the street where Arthur still lives, where the townhouse blew up, is actually pretty nice today. Also, someone put signs on all the doorknobs. Tax the rich, do you see that? Oh, here we are. Isn't this it? Where? The jutting out. Oh yeah, that's it. After the Wilkerson's sold what was left of the townhouse, the new owners decided to add a few architectural changes. 
that Saturday in March, when my girlfriend Annie and I were there, the townhouse was for sale for $19 million. Since then, it's been taken off the market. Trulia, an online real estate marketplace, now estimates its value is $10 million. Oh, how times have changed during the pandemic. But in some ways, they haven't. I'm thinking about what Kathy Wilkerson wrote. We had created a bubble of our own reality, and the bubble burst. How many bubbles have formed in the last year since the pandemic started? And how will they pop? Shoe Leather is a production of Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode reported, written, and produced by me, David Hollerith. Joanne Farron is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism librarian Christina Williams, Columbia Digital librarian Michelle Wilson, Michael Barbaro from The Daily, civil rights attorney Ron Kuby, Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from In the Dark, Emily Martinez and David Blum from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Professor Dale Meharage, Faven Merritt, Elise Manukian, Rachel Pilgrim, and Josh Lash. Additional sound mixing by Peter Leonard. A special thanks to Arthur Levin, Susan Blanchard, Mark Weisgull, Mark Rudd, Todd Gitlin, and my unofficial co-host, Annie Austin. Her thoughtfulness and ears have done more than make this podcast possible. Also, thank you and credit to Arthur Eichstein, whose book about the weather underground, Bad Moon Rising, showed me everything I never knew about CCR. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Dorn Zuni, and Camille Miller, remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music, Tendon and Flake Paint by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about shoe leather in this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest shoe leather happenings, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at shoeleathercast. <laughs>